BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 267. It's our January 2024 research review. We're going to discuss the paper that's making the rounds only because there's a new Netflix special called You Are What You Eat. Some of you may have watched that. We'll also talk about the new paper from the Data Driven Strength Guys uh, called uh, On Proximity to Failure on Strength Adaptations. And then also we'll talk about some new evidence coming out on does lifting heavy weights affect the pelvic floor in women and stress urinary incontinence and much, much more on this podcast. On the other end of the line is the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, um, doing all right. I think I'm currently on day 19 of 21 in the hospital. Uh, 21. So almost, almost there. 21. There you go. I actually got a brand new, uh, fresh medical student today, starting their very first rotation, first day, gave their first oral presentation on rounds today. <laughs> so, Wait, it's January wild. though. This yeah, doesn't make they, sense. They go to a school that does a year and a half uh, classroom curriculum and then starts rotations um, in, yeah. So they kind of condense the classroom part from two years down to a year and a half and start the rotations. So how do you feel that about was fun? That? I think it's fine. <laughs> I think I, I did a, they asked me anything last week and I basically suggest that the entire fourth year of medical school was useless. I mean, the, your sub I sub internship and maybe some of your, like the, the specialty you want to go into when you have to rotate there can be useful as like transitioning to intern year. But the problem is that's so front loaded. That's like right after you come out of your third year, you're ready and raring to go. Yeah, and then the yeah. rest of it's a vacation. So the vacation yeah. was nice. Yeah. But I would cut like the last nine months of fourth year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's it's tough for some of the, you know, there's a lot of specialties that you can go into that are not built into required rotations. And so you have to fit those someplace. So I think, you know, theoretically, yeah, medical school could be restructured uh, in certain ways. And the first the first year and a half curriculum or two years of curriculum could be restructured. I would uh, I would like to take a crack at, uh, at that <laughs> at some point. But would you add exercise education or exercise sort of exposure or some sort of exercise related teaching in the didactic portion? Yeah, I think some exposure to it would be a great idea. I don't think that it would be in an enormous amount of detail or I would not teach like principles of exercise programming or stuff like that because that's not appropriate for this, uh, you know, level of training. So. Yeah, I do think I would in, it would increase the teaching of like musculoskeletal medicine and start with just like exercise and exercise physiology and exercise related adaptations. 
And then like, it'd be like a problem-based learning sort of longitudinal course. Then yeah. you get into behavior change stuff, add in the nutrition component, and maybe, just maybe, you, you have part of the class be like, you gotta, you should participate if able. Just get more people into it. I don't know. Just giving people protected time to exercise. I don't know. We'll get, well, look, when we, one of us wins the, the lottery or something, we can start the Barbell Medicine Medical School. That's the dream. That's the dream. Look, if you're an investor out there, you got billions of dollars and you want to, you know, have less than billions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can help us start a medical school. Uh, okay. Hey, let's get into this. Uh, so you have, you have not read this study. So this is me like presenting the paper to you and then you're going right. to weigh in on that, That's right. how this is going to work. Sounds great to me. All right. So this first paper is called Cardiometabolic Effects of Omnivorous versus Vegan Diets in Identical Twins, a Randomized Clinical Trial. Now, I covered this on the little mini podcast, episode 256. But this is a paper um, that was published by Landry et al. Uh, they're out of Stanford, a research group out of Stanford. It was published in November of 2023 in JAMA, one of the biggest journals in, in medicine. And now it's being popularized based on a Netflix documentary called You Are What You Eat. So I've been getting a lot of DMs because I think this launched like January 2nd or January 1st. And people were like, oh yeah, another food documentary, which, you know, now that I think about it on Netflix, I think all of the food documentaries are vegan. Like there's no, there's no like keto or carnivore. Yeah. I can't think of one. I mean, I, I think I take the Alan Flanagan approach of like staying as far away from nutrition related media as I can. But, uh, but as far as I'm aware, yeah, most of it does tend to be more on the, on the vegan side of things. Yeah. I, which I guess is better. I'd rather I'd rather that be the case than like a carnivore thing or whatever. And I guess you can't have a sexy Netflix special that's like, hey, there are a lot of diets that can work. And we'll show you them, some, some of them. <laughs> uh, in any case, all right, let's pop into the study. So this study was done at Stanford. They took 22 pairs of identical adult twins for an eight-week study. So 22 pairs of identical adult twins. That's 44 total adults. 10 were men, 34 were women. Average body weight was 70 kilos, 154 pounds. The average BMI was 26. So these are individuals with technically overweight, although that doesn't uh, necessarily make sense with some of the other things the study reported. We'll talk about that shortly. And their average age was 40. Now, these were identical twins, also known as monozygotic twins. That just means they were developed from a single egg fertilized by a single sperm, and then that just split after the egg starts to develop. Uh, so they effectively share 100% of their genetic material. And this is in contrast to fraternal twins, also known as dizygotic twins, which uh, effectively had the same amount of genetic, they share the same amount of genetic material as non-twin siblings, about 50%. Uh, interestingly though, in this study, the majority of twins still live together. Almost 80% of the twins studied here actually still live together. Like, reducing the contribution of maybe different environments to the results. I, I don't know. Look, the average age was 40 and about 80% of them live together. Like, no, that was my first question is what was the spread on this age or do we have a bunch of 40-year-old twins living together? Okay, yeah, whatever. Right. No judgment. Right. Um, so the twins, one was randomized either to the vegan or omnivorous group and the other twin was randomized into the other group. Uh, in both cases, subjects were instructed to choose minimally processed foods to eat build a balanced plate with vegetables, starch, protein, and healthy fats, choose a variety uh, within each food group, and uh, individualize these guidelines to meet preferences and needs. So effectively, they did some nutritional counseling to the folks, told them to eat a vegan dietary pattern or omnivorous dietary pattern. Uh, weight loss was not discouraged, but the study also didn't advocate for it. They basically told uh, subjects to eat until they were full. The study had two phases. The first four weeks, they got meal delivery service from Trifecta. And the second four weeks, they prepared these meals at home. They measured blood work, uh, 
at baseline. So the start of the study, uh, and then after the first phase, uh, four weeks, and then at the end, so eight weeks in. And the primary outcome, the main subject of interest in the study was what happened to their low density lipoprotein cholesterol levels, their LDLC levels, when exposed to the two different dietary patterns. And Austin, you just want to give listeners a little 10,000 foot view of what LDLC actually is. Yeah, briefly, we've talked about this a fair amount before, but when people get their standard cholesterol panel or lipid panel measured, it tends to contain a few measurements, a total blood cholesterol measurement, a triglyceride measurement, which is a particular form of fat in the blood. If you want to oversimplify it to that extent, that's probably adequate. A high density lipoprotein or HDL cholesterol. And then from those parameters, usually there's a formula applied to calculate the um, concentration of this other protein called low-density lipoprotein and measure the amount of cholesterol being carried on it. And that's a lengthy way of just describing what the method is to arrive at this lab measurement. And what that is telling us is how much cholesterol is being carried on this particular lipoprotein, um, which is just a, a protein that helps to carry around things in the blood that don't dissolve in water, since our blood is mostly water-based. And so um, the, the idea is that um, this is one among many uh, contributors to the risk of what people know as heart disease, risk of heart attack, stroke, things like that. And the fundamental principle to understand is that you know, from the time we're born um, until we die, basically, the um, cumulative lifelong exposure to this uh, low-density lipoprotein in the blood is a pretty significant factor as it relates to people's heart disease risk. Again, there are other contributors as well, um, things like smoking and diabetes and blood pressure and things like that, but this is a pretty very, very significant one. And so the higher these levels are and the longer they're elevated for across the lifespan, um, that tends to confer increases in risk. And conversely, the lower those levels are and the longer they stay low, um, relatively speaking, then um, uh, that tends to uh, confer a reduction in the risk of uh, experiencing heart disease uh, complications like heart attacks, for example. Nice. We'll link adequate and ample resources that we've discussed these on before if you prefer to hear us talk about them and also read about them. We've got a bunch of articles on the website about that. Okay. So what were the results of the study? Now, first, we're going to start with the diet. Like, what do these people actually eat? And these are all based off 24-hour dietary recalls. Effectively, they have people jot down uh, what they think they ate over the last day, usually using a questionnaire sort of method, like how many times did you eat this particular food? And when you did eat it, how big were the, ser the uh, serving sizes? The average energy intake, the average amount of calories that were consumed was about 1,629 calories in the vegan group and 1,815 calories for the omnivorous group. The gap was about the same in both phases. Um, so when they either got the meals prepared for themselves or when they had to cook for themselves. And this actually resulted in a different uh, sort of differential weight loss where the vegan group lost about an extra one and a half to two kilos. So three to four pounds was actually lost in the vegan group, whereas the omnivorous group effectively maintained their weight throughout the eight weeks. As far as protein goes, the vegans averaged about 60 grams of protein per day in both phases. That's about 0 0.85 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. That's basically the RDA. Whereas the omnivorous group consumed about 90 grams of protein in both phases, which is about 1.3 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. The vegan group ate more carbohydrates, about 200 grams per day. Um, and then the omnivores ate a little bit less carbohydrates, 180 grams per day. Dietary fat was lower in the vegan group at 70 grams. And the omnivorous group ate 80 grams per day. All that is to say the vegans ate less protein, ate less fat, ate less calories, lost more weight than the omnivorous group. Now, here's where things get interesting. The low-density lipoprotein uh, cholesterol levels were pretty low to begin with, about an average of 114.6, 115, uh, which, Austin, you can confirm that is a 
relatively low level. Yeah. Not the lowest you've ever seen, not necessarily where you're looking for, but still pretty low overall. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Not bad. At, at the eight-week follow-up, so after the study was over, at eight weeks, the vegan group lowered their LDL cholesterol more than the omnivorous group. And that's going to be you know, the big uh, headline from this particular study. It's emphasized in the documentary, uh, for example, down to an average level of 95 and a half. Uh, milligrams per deciliter for the vegans compared to effectively no change for the omnivorous group. They were 116 uh, milligrams per deciliter. The other changes that the, they were looking for on blood tests, so things in uh, like changes in high-density lipoprotein, cholesterol, triglycerides, B12, fasting glucose, there's effectively no differences between the groups. Yeah, they went down in the vegan group um, compared to baseline, but this was also shown in the omnivorous group. It's a little bit smaller change, but there were no differences that were statistically significant. The only other statistically significant difference in blood tests, in fact, was this decrease in fasting insulin by 2.9 micro international units per liter compared to the omnivore group. So the vegans had a uh, decrease in their fasting insulin by a small amount. Uh, and then they did these dietary satisfaction scores at various points in the study. The people in the vegan diet arm reported a decrease in dietary satisfaction on every measure apart from the healthy lifestyle, healthy lifestyle scale. Um, but otherwise, uh, with that basically increased about halfway through the study, but they reported being less and less satisfied throughout, particularly when they had to eat out at home. Um, and then in the omnivore uh, diet arm, dietary satisfaction either increased at weeks four and eight or was maintained from baseline reported levels. I do not know the validity of that test, Austin, but just off the bat, when you hear the dietary satisfaction score, what, <laughs> what do you think about? I feel like your eyes just rolled in the back of your head and you're like, this can't mean anything. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'd just be curious as to what are the components of coming up with this score. I don't know how many different parameters you'd really need. It seems <laughs> like if somebody asked me like a basically yes, no, <laughs> are you satisfied yes, on your diet? exactly like, what it is. Yep. Yeah, and then <laughs> it's a fine. scale. And then it's a, a, new, a numerical scale. Oh, like, right? a one, like a Likert scale or something like that. Sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's fine by me, I guess. <laughs> All right, so the study goes on to conclude that in this randomized clinical trial of the cardiometabolic effects of omnivorous versus vegan diets and identical twins, the healthy vegan diet led to improved cardiometabolic outcomes compared to the healthy omnivorous diet. Uh, okay, so we're going to unpack that a little bit. So, yep, the vegan group, they ate less calories, less protein, less fat, more carbs than the omnivorous group, and they lost more weight. That's not shocking, but something to keep in mind as we discuss these results. Now, I think this paper is holding, uh, is hanging its hat on the decrease in LDLC levels, the low-density lipoprotein cholesterol levels. Um, so, yeah, they went down more than the omnivorous group from 114 to 95 compared to effectively no change in the uh, omnivorous group. But that amount of change to me is effectively a shoulder shrug emoji. Um, yeah, so I think that I'm probably going to slightly disagree in the sense that if this were one patient um, and one patient's blood lipids went uh, made that made that change, then yeah, I would not want to put a massive amount of weight on that. Um, but the more people that I am measuring these levels in, then I think, you know, we've talked about this a little bit before that these concepts of biological and analytical variation are very, very useful to, um, I don't know, to temper our interpretation of test changes on an individual level. But when we're measuring labs in a cohort of people or multiple people, then a lot of that um, systematic error and biological variation will kind of uh, wash out a little bit, particularly if you detect statistical differences between these data. So could the difference be, you know, smaller than is than is estimated or less significant than is purported? That's it's possible. But I think just, you know, um, 
putting a whole bunch of people in a pot or their blood in a pot and 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 uh, doing these uh, numerous tests, then I am less concerned about some of those um, test characteristics. And so I do view this as a you know I, I view this as a real difference. Um, part of part partly because of that, but also because it's consistent with other data in terms of what happens when people pursue more vegan diets compared with more omnivorous or certainly carnivore, carnivorous uh, uh, diets, meaning it's in line with the rest of the body of evidence. And then I agree with you also that the, the clinical significance of somebody's lipids going from 114 to 95 is not does not blow me away. Um, however, there's there's a couple, you know, caveats or, or, or ways to look at this. The first is just in absolute terms, that difference um, may not be enormous. However, it is in a favorable direction. In other words, the directionality of effect there is favorable compared with unfavorable, which is a useful thing to know. The other thing is, like I said earlier around LDL cholesterol, that the most important thing is not just the um, level, but how long it's elevated for. And so whatever difference in risk there is from these is just going to basically amplify across a person's lifespan. It may still be a small um, difference, but it may be a real, a real difference. And then the last thing I'll say is that the difference between those two is approximately 20 points in absolute terms. But if you look at it in terms of percentage, um, we don't, you know, we don't have data looking at this, but let's say, for example, if that was a percentage type effect that we can, we can lower, let me do some quick uh, math here. It's about a 17% reduction um, such that if maybe if somebody's starting blood uh, uh, LDL level was 200 and we take it 17% down from that, I'm much, I'm very pleased <laughs> um, that, that that is very indicative of, you know, significant risk reduction, because when you look at the rest of the body of evidence on this, you know, a lot of the trials use millimole measurements. So like one millimole is about 38 milligrams per deciliter and meta-analyses of all these other trials, you know, per millimole or per 38 milligram per deciliter reduction at approximately a 20 to 25% lowering of people's cardiovascular risk. And so we're approaching that with a dietary intervention here, um, not with medications necessarily. And so if that percentage if a decrease is something that we would see at higher levels of blood cholesterol, then that would be a favorable you know, change from a cardiovascular risk standpoint. There may be other effects that may be less favorable. For example, if somebody didn't set up their vegan diet in a intelligent way and developed you know, B12 deficiency or something like that, or or they drastically under ate protein, you know, um, uh, which you could make an argument um, in this in this group, uh, it was lower than we would otherwise um, seek out, but purely looking at this from the cardiovascular lens, I'm okay with this with this reduction. In absolute terms, it doesn't blow me away because they weren't at super high risk to start with. But in terms of a you know a relative improvement percentage wise, um, I think a lot of people who are at higher risk of cardiovascular disease would take that. It's just a question of would they be willing to to do this intervention to get there. Yeah, that's I think why where I'm kind of hung up on. I mean, so I, th I think we may have a different opinion about the you know, how real is this change? Yeah. With 44 people, you feel maybe more comfortable than I feel. And that's fine. I think uh, my biggest thing is not only the weight loss, but also because I would have preferred to see these individuals have higher levels of baseline cholesterol to see, does that relative change, is it bigger? So for example, if it was like a 30% reduction, you know, in cholesterol levels, because they started at a higher level, that would be more applicable to the population, you know, and you could say, look, man, if you eat a more plant-based diet, like we, you know, you can see a pretty large risk reduction in cardiovascular disease because the magnitude of effects going to be larger and lowering your cholesterol levels. I yeah, guess. It, it's interesting to me that this was chosen as their primary outcome. I don't know that this answered like a very important question that needed to be answered from a scientific standpoint. Like, if you if if you re read the scientific literature and you were unable to predict 
this outcome, this conclusion, then, then I question your literacy, I suppose. Like this is very consistent with what we'd expect from the rest of the, the research on this. Anyway. It, it is cool they do what they did with twins, right? But yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of helps with the genetic aspects of this when people are like, oh, what are the pleiotropic effects? It's like, okay, well, now they have the same genetics. So like, yeah. you know, a little bit different. Uh, and then the other thing I would have liked to see, so they did the, the first four weeks were all like meal delivery service. You could have had like objective data on what is, what's the calorie count, what's the, what are the macros, this, that, and the other, and to eliminate the effect of weight loss. That, that to me is the big confounder because you, while, while on the one hand, like active weight loss can do a whole bunch of weird things to cholesterol levels when people are actively losing or gaining weight, just because the dynamics in, in uh, adipose tissue can, can sometimes throw those tests off. I just think that's one, like maybe oversight. They should have just been like, look, let's not have these people lose any weight or gain any weight. So that way we can eliminate that, that confounding variable. Yeah, I agree. I think that both on the lipid front and on the insulin levels and the other things that having some amount of weight loss at least raises the question of how much of this was due to the dietary effect. I want, you know, I suspect with some statistical hand-waving that they could probably break that down and account for what proportion of the change was explained by weight loss versus lipids. I don't know if you know whether they did that, but um, again, it's like, we expect that both of those things are going to improve these. Like this is not a mind blowing kind of uh, outcome yeah. for these interventions. Oh yeah, and so that's. I mean, if the if the main takeaway that people get from the watching the documentary or whatever is that they should eat more of a plant based diet, like I'm pretty much for that. We know that vegans and vegetarians, on average, eat less calories than people eating an omnivorous diet, particularly the standard American diet, which again, by the way, is has nothing to do with the food plate or the food pyramid that's been out of commission for 20 years. Uh, but yeah, people who eat a vegetarian diet eat about 260 calories left, less per day. V vegans eat about 600 calories less per day. And if you ask me on a population level, will eating less calories and eating more plants like in general benefit most folks? Yeah, I think that's probably true. But I don't know that if somebody has an otherwise like health promoting diet, dietary pattern, and they're eating meat or animal products, if they switch to all, you know, a full vegan diet, I don't know that that's going to benefit their health. Any more than I think somebody who's eating a vegan diet that's well set up, including animals-based protein, for example, is going to improve their health trajectory. I think it's probably about the same where things start to get interesting. It has to do with like sustainability and like scaling and, and stuff like that. But uh, that is not for our podcast. <laughs> it's for, yeah. uh, oh, you don't want to get into the politics of like uh, food sustainability, agriculture, I prefer, maybe, perhaps unlike certain other health and you know fitness-oriented uh, podcasts, to not opine on every possible thing under the sun that I have no expertise in. Just you know, generally speaking. <laughs> That's look, man. If you've got a teleprompter that you can look directly into to make sure you get the clip for Instagram and for YouTube or whatever, so you can monetize and and whatever, <laughs> and be the scientific director for Athletic Greens, you. Uh... <laughs> We've said too much. All right, moving on. All right, so that's the first paper. It's linked in the description below. If you watch the the uh, documentary and you have a different take on stuff, you have some feedback, let us know. MediaBarbellMedicine.com. Always like to get those emails, particularly when they're positive. <laughs> All right, second paper of the 2024 January Research Review, episode 267 with Dr. Austin Baraki, is titled The Effect of Resistance Training Proximity to Failure on Muscular Adaptations and Longitudinal Fatigue in Trained Men. Now, first, I should say this is still a preprint. It was put out uh, November 2023, and there's some heavy hitters on the uh, author's list. So we got Zach Robinson of Data Driven Strength. Uh, he's been on the podcast before. Friends of the show, Dr. Eric Helms and Dr. Michael Zordos of uh, Daily Undulating Periodization, DUP fame. So I know uh, Dr. Helms is a listener. If you're listening and we screw up any of this, feel free. Please DM me and I will uh, atone for my, for my errors. 
All right. So let's give you, give you guys a little background here. We've talked about proximity to failure, RPE, stuff like that uh, many different times, but just to make sure we're all on the same page. Proximity to failure is a concept related to intensity, that's the load on the barbell, that describes how close an individual comes to their maximum volitional performance or effort for a given task. The lower the proximity to failure, so things like zero repetitions left in reserve, or RPE 10, one repetition left in reserve, or RPE 9, or two repetitions in reserve, that's RPE 8, the higher the intensity of the task. The harder the effort is, the heavier the weight, et cetera. And on the other side, the greater the proximity to failure, so the further away people are from failure, so RP7 is three reps in reserve, RP6, four reps in reserve, and so on, the lower the intensity of the task, the lower the weight. Um, another thing you guys should know about is that velocity loss during a set is also closely related to both intensity and proximity to failure. We're going to talk a lot about velocity in this particular study. So sets performed at higher intensities, higher weights and higher RPE or lower repetitions in reserve values tend to show higher amounts of velocity loss per set. However, not all sets performed at high intensity have high, R high RPEs and low repetition in reserve values and thus do not have significant amounts of velocity loss. So we'll do a little thought experiment here. Example one, a person squats three reps at RPE nine, it's about 89% of their one rep max for one set, or an individual squats one rep at RPE seven, 89% of their one rep max for three sets. The volume, the total reps, and the intensity, the percent of their 1RM is matched in both examples, yet the proximity to failure are much different. One repetition left in reserve for the first example compared to three repetitions in reserve for the second example. And this is what yields uh, the difference in RPE between the two examples. The resulting fatigue, we think, is likely to be different between the two examples, with the sets performed closer to failure being significantly more fatiguing than the sets kept further away from failure. Uh, and so we think that training closer to failure generates more muscular damage, decreased performance potential, decreases motor learning and skill acquisition for no real improved benefit in strength or no like proportional improved benefit in strength. Uh, but the counter argument here is that is based on the assumption that a higher training stress, like higher training stress, training session, things are harder, like more sets are taken closer to failure or all the way to failure produces more fitness adaptation. People say that all the time. They're like, you got to force the adaptation, load the weight go close to failure, take it to failure, submaximal stuff doesn't work, easy stuff doesn't work. That's the counter argument. So the purpose of this study was to look at the effect of proximity to failure on muscular hypertrophy, muscular strength, and fatigue. So uh, this is what they, this was done at uh, Florida Atlantic University. It's 38 men aged 18 to 40 with two years of resistance training experience had to have at least a one and a quarter uh, body weight back squat, had to have a one times body weight bench press for one rep max to be included, and they were otherwise healthy. This is an eight-week study. They put people into four different training groups. Now, each of the four different training groups, they lifted three times a week. It was just squat and bench press, which sounds like an awesome program. <laughs> they did the same number of sets and reps uh, total, but the only difference was proximity to failure. So effectively, the weight was the big difference here. Group one trained everything four to six RPE, so they were leaving six to four reps uh, in the tank. Group two trained at seven to nine RPE predominantly, so three to one repetitions left in reserve. Uh, and group three was seven to nine plus, meaning that they were somewhere between three and zero repetitions uh, in reserve. And then group four was RP10, which is just full send, failure all the time. <laughs> uh, so they did use repetitions in reserve as their proxy for RPE. Uh, so uh, again, basically, if someone did an RP5 set, they had five repetitions left in reserve. If the uh, submaximal groups, the people doing RP four to six or seven to nine, 
uh, if those groups uh, either under or overshot their desired RPE range, they change the load. And same thing uh, in the RP10 group, they effectively change the load if uh, the people thought, hey, I can't actually do the same number of reps. A uh, couple interesting quirks about the study, they gave them BCAAs and glutamine before each session, which I don't, I don't know why. I mean, I understand the theoretical argument, but like, come on, guys, you know, you know better than that. And then uh, afterwards, they got some whey, which I'm uh, a fan of, 30 grams of whey after each session. For outcomes, they measured 1RM back squat and bench press. They also measured the muscle thickness of the quadriceps and chest muscle via ultrasound. It should be noted that the investigator who actually did the measurement was different at baseline and then after the study because this is due to COVID. So it's tough to rate the inter-rater reliability here. As far as uh, other things that they measured, they tried to figure out how much fatigue the different training uh, proximity to failures generated. So they did blood tests, Austin's favorite, creatine kinase. So they got CK values, which if you don't know what that is, you want to deep dive into CK. You can go back to the last podcast on rhabdomyolysis. We talk all about CK in that particular podcast. And they also measured lactate dehydrogenase. They measured bar velocity on each rep to correlate intraset fatigue uh, to RPE and also see like what was the velocity loss during each set. They rated muscle soreness before and after uh, training days one and two on weeks one, two, and seven. Now, Austin, you might like this. They used an algometer, also known as a dolorimeter which uh, is effectively a gauge with a little probe attached to it. And it's a pressure. It tells you like how much force you have to push down for somebody to like report pain in this particular case. Do Interesting. You ever, uh, yeah. You ever use one of those? I have no clinical utility for something like this <laughs> to uh, uh, attempt to quantify um, people's pain or certainly to compare one person's pain to another. That, had, that, that would not tell me anything useful uh, in, in clinical practice, but interesting tool nonetheless. Do you have a, a, a idea what units they reported the... Uh... Dolorometer readings in pressure measurements. I don't know, like newtons or something, or what? <laughs> like kilopascals. Kilopascals. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, right. They also used uh, some subjective uh, ratings of fatigue. So things like a um, session RPE. They used motivation to train. Uh, the last interesting thing that that I thought was was cool about this, they came up with this uh, this term called smallest effect size of interest. Which I thought is basically just the minimal, the minimal clinically important difference. They figure for the squat, it was going to be 7.7 kilos. The bench was going to be 5 kilos. And then they came up with the same sort of the minimal change they thought was going to be relevant to anybody here for hypertrophy. It was a 0.79 millimeters for the vastus lateralis and just under 2 millimeters for the uh, pectoralis major. I thought that was cool because I had never seen almost any other study like discuss that at all. So good job, guys. Uh, okay. So what happened in the study? So there was 32 subjects total, six dropped out. The study reports that the RP10 group was terminated due to safety concerns. And I, I went through it a few times. I couldn't see exactly when that group was actually like eliminated, uh, you know, like when they, they decided to like wrap that out, wrap them up. I don't, uh, think they, I don't think they wanted it bad enough, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then also the RP7 and 9 group was altered mid-study to be four to six RP. So I don't. Again, there's some interesting stuff that's happened with the data here. So really, to me, this study was like RP four to six versus seven and nine plus. Okay. Uh, volume was basically the same across groups otherwise. Now, the people training in like the seven to nine plus uh, trained at about 83% 1RM uh, for their bench press and their squat, whereas the RP four to six group trained at 80% approximately for their bench press and 73% for their squat. So there's some differences there in relative intensity. Uh, and this was verified by velocity loss. 
there was far less velocity loss in the RP4 to 6 group. They lost about 30% of velocity in bench press, which is actually pretty substantial because they were training at 80%. Yeah, yeah, more than I would expect for, for that level of RP targeting. But anyway, yeah, okay. But, but they only lost 14% of velocity on their squat. Compared to the 7 to 9 plus group, they lost 41% velocity uh, in their bench press and 24% on their squat. So some interesting kind of, that corroborates like, hey, these are pretty different as far as uh, velocity loss. Yeah, and so if this concept of velocity loss is, is confusing to anybody you know listening uh, who's not familiar with the term, it's really just grinding or not grinding. <laughs> like when you grind a set and it gets really, really, really hard and really, really slow, that would be a high amount of velocity loss, meaning that your speed has dissipated. You are not able to move very quickly. And um, somebody with less velocity loss, the lower RPE targets, they're still moving the bar snappy, uh, moving, moving very quick, even at the end of their set. Yeah, less intraset fatigue has built up yeah. effectively. Um, yeah. Okay, so what happened to strength levels? Uh, so 1RM back squat in the RPE 4 to 6 group went up by 13.79 kilos. The 7 to 9 group went up by 18 kilos. And in the RPE 10 group, it went up 5.5 kilos. The authors report that only the RPE 4 to 6 and 7 to 9 groups were the ones who met that sort of minimal clinically important difference. The change, uh, the improvement in strength from the RP10 group was not greater uh, than their sort of predefined limits for like what was significant in this study. The 1RM bench press changes in the RP4 to 6 group was nine, about nine kilos. In the 7 to 9 group was 9.7 uh, kilos. In the 7 to 9 plus group, it was five, uh, about five kilos. And in the RP10 group, it was 0.71 kilos so that like 0.71 just correct. to be clear they did not yep. get much better on average and again the rp4 to 6 or 7 to 9 groups those are the only groups that sort of met that minimal clinically important difference um, as far as hypertrophy goes none of them actually improved in muscular hypertrophy so none of them met that sort of minimal clinically important difference which makes sense to me it's an eight-week study like i didn't think that you're going to see a big uh, uh sort of improvement particularly in trained individuals in eight weeks uh, especially with two with the two different testers on the ultrasound sort of test. As far as the fatigue uh, measurements they did in the blood tests, yeah, nothing effectively was different with the CK or, or the LD, the LDH. What they were trying to figure out was what was the effect of like the repeated bout effect. Like, did the people doing the same exercise week in week out did it trend down over the eight week study? And it didn't really. It, the CK and LDH levels went up after training, went back down within forty eight hours. No really. Big differences between uh, groups. As far as soreness goes, now uh, again, this is like a threshold sort of thing. So a higher number is effectively better. That just means it took more force, more pressure to uh, effectively generate. Uh, ow, you know that that hurts. I got I'm sore. Uh, so it was highest in the RP four to six group, uh, and then lowest in the RP ten group. The difference, I don't know that I can say that that's huge, but I think it's nice that it confirms our biases here. Yeah. yeah, I don't know that we needed not 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 like that. I'm bashing the study here, but I think that if you talk to most people about their training, like if you train at RPE five versus ten, who's going to get more sore? This this basically confirms what you would expect from from yeah. that sort of a thing. Un, unsurprising. Yep. Uh, session RPE was lowest in the four to six group, and then highest in the RPE ten group. Exactly what you would uh, predict. The perceived recovery scale. Uh, again, this was uh, effectively them rating how recovered they felt like they were, where a higher number uh, would say that they're more recovered, more energetic, um, and then a lower number would be less recovered, more tired. Uh, the perceived recovery scale was lowest in the 10 RPE group uh, and highest in the four to six group. So again, kind of 
what you would expect here. As far as uh, other metrics of fatigue, they had a motivation to train survey. It was lowest in the RP10 group. Uh, and then basically uh, very similar in the R uh, RP4 to 6 and 7 to 9 groups. Uh, minimal changes across the study. But uh, if you wanted to lift something from the study to like confirm your, I want to train to failure biases, the RP10 group had the most improvement over the study. They got more motive, more motivated There's in terms a, of their motivation, despite feeling worse and adapting less. Correct. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. It was just they were the only ones that had a positive slope. It was ever so slight, and so it's like, ooh, it improved the most, which is maybe true, but not necessarily meaningful. Although that's also the group that, uh, in, at least in some of that, they had to get uh, terminated or, or terminated <laughs> from from the study. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the authors conclude at the end of the study that overall, these data suggest that when both repetition and set volume are equated, muscle strength outcomes are likely similar when taking sets to either four to six repetitions in reserve or one to three repetitions in reserve in trained men. While both approaches seem to be slightly more effective than training that includes sets performed to momentary failure, seven to nine plus RPE and 10 RPE groups, which I feel like we've been saying this for, well, some time. So it's kind of nice to, to see this. Uh, I mean, the strength stuff makes sense. Once you're in the ballpark of like, okay, this is heavy enough to drive adaptations and the volume is equated, I would not predict better or worse outcomes unless that proximity to failure changed significantly. And you could identify that with velocity loss, for example. So most of your sets, for example, Austin, in training, you don't see much velocity loss uh, towards the end um, of the set. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, if we had to translate this to like our training approaches, aside from just like doing a top single or something like that, I feel like, you know, a fair amount of my training probably falls more in the, the it, like in this study, the four to six group, maybe mine's like maybe five to seven or something like that. And I think you just prefer or bias yourself, or maybe you've gravitated to what you feel works a little better for you just a touch higher than that. Um, but neither of us are taking our strength work um, particularly close to failure uh, most of the time. Correct. I agree. Now, this was interesting. So they did some... Uh... The, they measured the bar velocity, right? So the, the last rep on their, the squat in the RP4 to 6 group was about 0.55 meters per second, which from Florida Atlantic University, they got a ton of data on bar velocity or whatever. They think that's approximately eight repetitions left in reserve based on their data set. That's very which, fast, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically that's RP2. Uh -huh. And they were like, yeah, still saw like the most amount of gains, even though, you know, these people were probably in the four to six group, maybe actually further away from failure. Although I do think when you start rating really low RPs, it's kind of hard to gauge, well, how many reps do you have left? You just know that it wasn't that hard and the bar velocity didn't slow down that much. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. They Basically, they stayed even further from failure than was intended and they still got quite good um, adaptation. Yeah. My big surprise here, though, was that the, you know, the fatigue wasn't that the higher fatigue stuff, the RP10 stuff did worse but that none of the fatigue metrics could really pick up on that, you know? And it could be because, okay, well, there were really like small repetitions and reserve differences, like seven to nine versus seven to nine plus versus 10. That's pretty small compared to like 10, just to four to six. That would be, I don't know, maybe a bigger difference. You'd pick up uh, more stuff, but also the like ratings of fatigue, all that stuff is, it's it, the session RP was the only thing that they did that was like right after the effort, uh, right after the training session. But, you know, doing the blood tests, doing the, um, uh, all those, you know, global inventories, uh, motivation to train, this, that, and the other. I just don't know that those are maybe sensitive enough to pick up like differences between proximity to failure. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that some of those tools, aside from the blood tests, which I 
you know, I think we would have predicted were going to be unhelpful or uninformative here. I think that more so for the purposes of the study itself, uh, seeing consistent signal between those different um, other tests all pointing in the same direction could help you to feel more confident that like, yes, the groups did in fact stay within their prescribed fatigue ranges because the group that was supposed to be the, the furthest away was the least sore. Um, the group that was supposed to get the closest to failure did have the highest soreness, et cetera. And so it's just kind of confirmatory that they were training in the way that you intended them to, because if you got completely backwards results or something like that, then you wonder like, was the training all screwed up and then my outcomes are uninterpretable or was my data invalid? So I think it's more like supportive of, yeah, they trained in the way we wanted them to, um, aside from the blood tests, uh, but, uh, but not so much that I would generalize to like practical use out in the real world, because I think that you know, despite everybody's uh, dream, hopes and dreams of uh, being able to come up with uh, tools that are highly predictive, whether for performance or for adaptation, I think it's very unlikely that that'll ever really happen um, in a meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Like try to come up with a training readiness score based on like, okay, uh, you know, what's your motivation to train? What are your energy levels? What's your perceived recovery? This, that, and the other. It sounds great. Right. And, and and I'm certain that you can validate the majority of these tests in various contexts, but trying to put them all together for like a composite score in a way that allows you to intelligently modify programming based on that response. So like a Strain. Across across a whole population, four different potential modalities of exercise. Like totally. I think there's just it just gets so so uh, so messy. Yeah. 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 I mean, look, I want it too. I just I just don't know how to do it. And this yeah. this uh, particular study doesn't make me feel more confident that we will be able to do so without some big big data sets and a lot of machine learning and then probably stuff that we don't even think about. Yeah. It'll be like it'll be like, hey, uh, did you, it'll be something completely unrelated. Did you shave this morning? <laughs> you know, how many cups of coffee have you had? And then like, when was the last time you squatted? And it's like, boom. and then feed it through chat GPT. And they say, it'll, 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 it'll tell you what weight to put on the bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Done deal. Chat GPT six or seven. That's right. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell the Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. 
Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Now our final study here on episode 267, our 2024 January research review is called The Acute Effect of Heavy Weightlifting on Pelvic Floor Muscles in Strength-Trained Women, an Experimental Crossover Study. Uh, All right, so for some background here, we're going to be talking about incontinence, which is the involuntary leakage of urine, uh, which affects both men and women, though it is much more common in women than men, tends to increase with age and likely uh, seemingly with athletes, particularly those who engage in heavy lifting. There are four main types of incontinence. We're going to be talking about stress urinary incontinence. This we think is due to an increased intra-abdominal pressure. So for example, when you're lifting heavy weights, when you're doing a balsava maneuver, um, and we'll be focusing on that today. For completeness, there are three other types. There's urgency incontinence, which is the urge to void immediately before uh, or sometimes accompanied with involuntary leakage of urine. There's mixed, which is both stress and urgency. And then there's overflow, which is due to incomplete bladder emptying. Um, but yeah, we're focusing on SUI, which is stands for stress urinary incontinence. And you might be thinking, well, why is this important? Why are we talking about on the Barbell Medicine Podcast? Well, first off, we've already talked about it twice. So if you're like, why are you guys even talking about this? I refer you to some of our previous podcasts. I'll link those uh, in the description below. It's episode 146 and episode 229. But the thing here is that SUI, stress urinary incontinence in women, has a general lifetime prevalence of about 10 and 39% of all women. Uh, and it peaks at age 50 to 54. However, the rates are much higher in general in women who participate in sports, which includes resistance training. It's thought that athletic women, for example, are about three and a half times more likely to have SUI compared to non-athletes. In fact, one of the studies we reviewed in our June 2022 research review uh, suggested that uh, in lifters alone, now these are mostly powerlifters and strong women, uh, 43.5% of them experienced stress urinary incontinence with daily tasks. 59.1% reported SUI during competition, and over 60% of them did not have it before starting sport. So this was like a new experience to them. So this brings up a common assumption that heavy lifting actually overwhelms and damages the muscles of the pelvic floor. Now, the pelvic floor consists of ligaments, fascia, and muscles, obviously. And in addition to providing support for the pelvic organs, things like the bladder, the urethra, vagina, uterus, and the rectum in women, it also must counteract increases in intra-abdominal pressure during physical exertion. So with more intra-abdominal pressure from heavy lifting, Valsalva maneuvers, lifting heavy weights, there would be more stress urinary incontinence incidents and worsening over time if pelvic floor, if the pelvic floor is damaged. And this has all been like theoretical so far. 
So people will make that claim and say, yeah, you should avoid lifting heavy weights if you have stress urinary incontinence because you're damaging the pelvic floor muscles or you're lifting too heavy as evidenced by the fact that you have stress urinary incontinence. The aim of this particular study was to assess the immediate effects of heavy lifting on pelvic floor muscle, resting pressure, resting strength, endurance, and resting activity in women who have not had children, uh, in addition to seeing if general strength in the whole body uh, exercises, the squat and the deadlift in this case, correlated to pelvic floor muscle strength. And so this is going to tell us, do the muscles actually change after women lift heavy weights? Is there some sort of damaging effect or reduced function after lifting heavy weights? All right. So the study, 47 women aged 18 to 35, none of them had children because we know that giving birth to children can be a risk factor for SUI. Uh, average age was 27. They were mostly grad students. Um, the average back squat one rep max was 1.2 times body weight. The average is 108 kilos, so almost 240 pounds. Their average deadlift was one and a half times body weight. The average was 128 kilos, so about 280 kilos. And uh, yeah, so 47 women, there was 14 power lifters, four Olympic weightlifters, 14 recreational lifters, and 14, Austin, you'll love this, functional fitness athletes. Nice. Maybe just because of trademark issues or something, they can't say it. Can't say CrossFit. Fair <laughs> enough. It's okay. Uh, so what they did is they used a, uh, a surface EMG for pelvic floor muscles at rest. Now, this was a transvaginal uh, sort of instrument. Uh, so they did it at rest, just a ba at baseline, and then immediately after doing four sets of back squats and deadlifts at 75 to 85% of their one rep max uh, to about one to three repetitions left in reserve. And then they also used a balloon catheter as a pressure transducer to measure things like strength and pressure and general uh, muscular activity. The results. I'll tell you that first off, the results are short because there were basically no significant differences in pelvic floor muscle resting activity, resting pressure, strength, or endurance after lifting or resting. So effectively, the people either lifted weights, squats and deadlifts, or they rested, and then they compared the sort of tests they did of their pelvic floor muscles uh, to whether they uh, to the baseline. And there was basically no differences. Uh, there was also no, cor no correlation in pelvic floor muscle strength and one RM strength, either absolute or relative, meaning that people who were stronger didn't ha necessarily have stronger um, pelvic floor muscles, which I actually thought was interesting because you would predict like, oh, well, the stronger you get, the stronger everything gets. But in this case, not particularly related. All right. So as far as how do I interpret this? I don't know that the absolute value values, like the average EMG values, pressure values, and stuff that they actually obtained during the test I don't know that they're particularly useful because I don't know that like we have cutoffs for like resting pelvic floor muscle activity, you know, and risk of SUI, for example. There's some evidence of fatigue in pelvic floor muscles uh, showing like a reduced sort of tone over time and then an increase in stress urinary incontinence. Uh, so you would suspect that if the values that they obtained with the EMG or with the pressure balloon, uh, the pressure transducer if that showed a significant decrease after lifting heavy, the squats and the deadlifts, oh, maybe that would increase risk of SUI, but they didn't see that at all compared to rest. So no real evidence for that. It's also been suggested that strenuous training may cause an increase in muscle tone. So this hypertonicity of the pelvic floor maybe may cause pelvic pain, sexual disorders. So you would expect that, okay, well, if that's true, after squatting and deadlifting heavy, these women would see an increase in resting tone, which you could pick up via these tests, but that didn't happen either. So both of those things seem to be unsupported based on this evidence. Um, interestingly, in this study, there was no actual report of like how many incidences of SUI actually happened during the lifting, which I thought would have been interesting. They said they were going to ask. It's like in the methods, but there's no report of like, oh yeah, and here's how many times we noted it. I would just be curious to see like 
okay, if all these, if none of these people, for example, had SUI and you're like testing for like mechanisms, <laughs> I don't know how useful the data is, but it's the, this is the data we have. Um, and yeah, so there's uh, also no longitudinal data to see if this changes over time because this was just a single, you know, test. So hard, hard to really know. Awesome. We don't really, yeah, we don't really even know. I mean, this is like a study that can tell you there were not differences in these things that they tested, but we also don't know for sure that these things that they tested are what we care about or what what mediate the incidence of stress urinary incontinence. In other words, like this is telling us that, you know, we didn't see any difference. Um, but to your point, if they had said, oh, there was a whole bunch of SUI happening in the in the lifters and then the recreational or the regular students didn't have any, yet we didn't see any difference in these outcomes. And that just tells you that like these tests are not measuring something that it, that mediates or that explains that reflects the physiology difference leading to SUI in one group and not in another. And you just have to like look for something else that would explain it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I feel like we have half the story. We're like, OK, so these things we tested didn't change. And you're like, okay, cool, but like, did the outcome of actual interest change? Like, what was the SUI? Yeah. How, how many yeah. had involuntary leakage of urine? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, not a lot to add to the data, but it, we're, we're starting to build this case here maybe about, you know, what's, what happens with uh, uh, female athletes uh, with respect to SUI. Uh, but in general, the take home here is that SUI is very prevalent, particularly in active women, particularly in those who lift heavy weights. And the biggest issue I see is that it's undertreated and underdiagnosed. Uh, in that previous study on uh, uh, powerlifters and strong women, um, only 17.2% of their over 400 uh, uh, sort of survey respondents said that they talked to their doctor about it, and less than 10% sought treatment. Um, and, and of that 10%, only a handful actually sought, uh, got set up with a pelvic floor physical therapist, which would probably be the general recommendation there. Um, nearly half reported talking to someone other than their doctor, and a third sought advice from the internet, presumably social media, which almost zero out of 10 would not recommend in general for clinical <laughs> yeah. care. Um, and yeah, my take on this still is basically the same, that the incidence of SUI, that involuntary leakage of urine, it seems to be an artifact of sport, like rather than being causative, meaning that you, once you have women who are maybe predisposed to this engage in sport in, in vigorous activity, you're going to identify those who are kind of set up to have this particular issue. It's not that the, the sport or the activity is making it worse per se. It's just identifying those who would otherwise have it. And so, you know, that would be like a, a negative externality of getting more women training. For example, you just have an increased prevalence of SUI, which I think is worth the risk. But I think if this study, for example, reported that, look, the pelvic floor doesn't change at all compared to those who have SUI versus don't, it would make a, a better argument for like, yeah, your pelvic floor is doing fine during, during the workout. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, we, we've talked before about the validity of things like surface EMG for various outcomes, but I mean, to whatever extent that reflects their, you know, like you said, their, their resting muscle tone or their quote unquote strength, not that it really directly does, but, you know, to those who might, continue to make an argument that, hey, like powerlifting weakens your pelvic floor and and causes this, predisposes you to that. Again, that this a signal for that was not identified in this paper. I would I would put it that way. And so this I would say could be supportive of your thought that um, if if uh, the physiology that was measured through these tests was similar across all these different groups. And again, if we <laughs> 
given that they didn't tell us the incidents, but if it were, if that were similar, then you would say that, hey, like these activities don't seem to actually worsen pelvic floor function, um, which is which is definitely a thought that is out there that uh, that people will say that it, you know, weakens or, you know, damages or something else, which we I don't know that we have great reason to support or believe at this time. It certainly doesn't do that for any other part of the body. So, right. <laughs> I would I would have liked to see them do it only in uh, women who have had children, though, as well, because I think that then the incidence and the risk would be higher. Right. And so, again, you'd have a more sort of you're, you're enriching valid. your study population with people who are susceptible. Yeah, that that makes sense. That is yeah. a, that is the method used in science. <laughs> Take the highest risk people and study them first before you go to the rest of the general population. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I work for big resistance training, I'm looking for the biggest outcome. So we get those <laughs> yeah. flashy headlines and get people <laughs> lifted weights. That's the idea. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you want to know more about SUI, you can check out episodes uh, 146 and 229. I have linked those in the description below. That's a wrap. Austin, any parting words here for episode 267? I think the uh, the next time we chat, we'll be on the other side of the world. So We'll be in Australia, mate. That's my worst. <laughs> That's the worst. I'm sorry. I apologize to everybody in the South Pacific think, for that. I think they just canceled your visa. <laughs> yeah, I have to go now. All right. That's a wrap here on episode 267 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Thank you so much to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.